As Catholics, we believe the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. In every piece of bread at every Mass that becomes God himself, we believe all of the power that created the universe is in that one host. As Catholics, we receive it every Sunday or even every day. Yet how much is our life different after we receive? In today's episode of Physically Spiritual, I'll explore the Eucharist and how to receive the body and blood of our Lord to become more and more in the likeness of God. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I am captivated with discovering the truth about my body and how it relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. As we get started, I want to share some opportunities with you. If you want to support everything that we do at Awaken Catholic, consider becoming a part of the Awaken Nation. The Awaken Nation is a community of patrons that support the work at Awaken Catholic for as little as a cup of coffee a week. Go to awakencatholic.org forward slash donate to become a part of the nation. If you want the best experience of everything produced here at Awaken Catholic, consider getting the Awaken app. Go to the awakenapp.io or search for the Awaken app on the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store, and you can find the Awaken app. The Awaken app also includes discussion boards. It's like an alternate to um, social media and discussion boards on all of the shows. Uh, you can get access to your Awaken Nation uh, bonus content, and you can also find some music and prayers there. So download the Awaken app. We are also partners with Hollow. Hollow is a Catholic meditation app to help you uh, find peace and grow in your spiritual journey. If you want to try the Hollow app, a great aid to help learn how to meditate and pray, go to hollow.app forward slash awaken. And if you want to find anything that I'm doing or get a little help and support applying the ideas from the show, go to becominggift.com. Today's episode of Physically Spiritual is about the Eucharist. The Eucharist is just the, the fancy Catholic name for communion, for the bread and wine that's prayed over by the priest. And like I said, we believe it becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And then as Catholics, we get the opportunity to receive that bread and wine at Mass. The Catechism teaches in paragraph 1322 that the Eucharist completes Christian initiation. So what's begun in, in baptism and then what is taken a deeper in confirmation as the completion of baptismal grace is, is brought to its fulfillment in the Most Holy Eucharist. So these three sacraments, baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist, are the sacraments of initiation. And these were the, the first three episodes on the sacraments. So go to the show notes and you can find previous episodes on the sacraments of baptism and confirmation. The Catechism also teaches that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. In paragraph 1324 it says, The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. The other sacraments, and indeed all ecclesial ministries and works of the apostolate, are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented toward it. For in the Blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the Church, namely Christ himself. So uh, what it said there, ecclesial ministries, that's just a fancy way of saying things the Church does. <laughs> uh, ecclesial is the word for Church. Ministries are, are different ways we outreach and, and share Christ with others. 
So everything the church does, the whole good of the church is found in the Eucharist because we believe the Eucharist is Jesus, is Christ substantially present. Um, and this word Eucharist, it's, it's kind of an odd word. It comes from a Greek word, Eucharistia, which literally translates as thanksgiving or gratitude. But there's also another meaning um, that's, that's kind of hidden in it. So midway through, you, you notice that, that word charis, charis. Charis is actually the same word in the New Testament that's used for grace or favor. And then the prefix that comes before eu, you, is good or well. Um, so while Eucharist is, is thanksgiving or, or gratitude that we offered back to God himself, the perfect thanksgiving and gratitude, it's also, uh, it's also the good grace that God gives us, the, the divine life that God gives us. Uh, so the first layer of the sacrament, the sign itself or the sacramentum tantum, uh, physically what's happening at the, at the Mass. Um, so the rite that surrounds the Eucharist, meaning that the public way we pray, is called the Mass. So if you've ever seen, uh, if you're not Catholic and have seen uh, like Catholics advertise for their Sunday services, we call it the Mass. And the Mass is just the rite that's around communion, that's around the Eucharist. The minister of the Eucharist is the, the priest or the bishop. And, and the physical sign that they pray over, that they consecrate, is bread and wine. And you might ask yourself, why bread and wine? Why these two, these two things? Well, the Mass isn't gluten-free, low-carb, paleo-keto, or even vegan, if you think it is truly the body of our Lord. Um, and, and these were the, the signs that were used at the, the Jewish Passover meal, celebrated by the Jewish people. But I think there's even a, a deeper historical significance that I want to share with you. So join me as we take a little tour through about uh, 10 or 15,000 years of human history and talk about bread. So from a historical uh, significance, when we're talking about bread and wine, we're talking about food. And I think the full significance of these symbols come out when we talk about the history of agriculture. Because the earliest human civilizations that we have records for were hunter-gatherers. They were tribal people that lived in small, tight-knit communities, and, and they lived on the land, what they could gather from out of the water, what they could hunt, or what they could gather from the area around them. Uh, so it wasn't until about ten to 15,000 years ago, depending where you're talking on earth, that we had agriculture come in. So when I'm talking about agriculture, I'm talking about the ability to domesticate animals to become livestock and the ability to plant seed to determine where you're going to gather food from. Uh, previous to the dawn of agriculture, the land had a limited capacity to support people. So there was sort of this built-in limit to how many people a certain amount of space could, uh, could care for. And then there was always a risk of natural disaster. So there was always a risk of uh, either having a drought or too much heat or maybe a flood or something like that in, in the food source leaving. So oftentimes people's had to travel from place to place. They lived this more nomadic lifestyle in a lot of places because they had to follow the food. Um, so with the dawn of agriculture came the ability for people to start to control uh, this natural environment and, and limit the dangers that would come along with natural disasters. So there was a pastoral lifestyle that developed where animals were domesticated and grazed. 
But even this pastoral lifestyle had certain limits to it, right? How much was available for the animals to graze and then how many people could live on those animals. And then there was also agriculture of raising crops. So uh, the, the raising of crops is really what went along with the development of cities, because the ability to raise crops in field, you, you had um, both the control of the quantity of food that was available, and then you were also able to store those crops, especially grains, and then store them for years. So you, you were able to have this sort of safety net. And the book of Genesis actually has a lot of this in it. So the chosen people are called out of Ur of the Chaldees, and, and, and uh, uh, the man whose name became Abraham was a herder of animals, and and they they go on this journey to what later becomes the Holy Land, the land of Canaan, and his his children are living on this land. Him and his relative that comes with him, Lot, actually have to separate because the land is not able to support the size of their flocks. Right, so so we see this happening that there's this limited capacity of the land to handle the livestock, so they separate. And then later on, generations later, Joseph is sold into Egypt by his brothers. And the, the chosen people experience a famine. And they end up going to Egypt because in Joseph's dreams that God had given to him, he anticipated seven years of, of plenty and then seven years of famine. And so with that, uh, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, put uh, Joseph in charge of the agriculture of the country, and he saved up food for seven years. He saved up the grain. And then when the seven years of famine came, uh, they had food to eat in Egypt. So this is how the chosen people wind up in Egypt, is they come down and they discover Joseph, their long-lost son there, and then they're able to have food to eat. So this uh, is obviously a, a huge piece of technology that was massive for the history of humanity, the ability to raise plants, and animals, and to control the natural environment. But it wasn't without drawbacks. There, there, were, um, there were big consequences to this. One, uh, looking back, we have, uh, we have, great, um, uh, we have uh, great records of actually the health of the Egyptians. Egyptians were famous for mummifying their people. So there's a lot of bones of the Egyptians. And from those bones, um, we can see sort of the result of their diet on their body. For example, we, we know that the Egyptians' teeth were actually pretty bad <laughs> and that hunter-gatherers that, that lived a natural lifestyle didn't have the same kind of dental problems that the Egyptians did. We also see that there was a, a shrinking of stature, that humans got smaller as agriculture took, uh, took hold. And that um, we could imply from that that the nutrition that the people received from agriculture was actually poorer, that they weren't able to sustain the same frame size in their body. There were also social um, drawbacks to this. You know, the living in city, then there, there became more and more class to society, right? They were sort of the haves and the have-nots. At the top of the pyramid, uh, pun intended, is the king or the pharaoh, right? This ruler. And then at the bottom were oftentimes slaves or indentured servants or some kind of lower class that were laborers. Um, so while before, even in a tribe, you would have had a, a certain amount of maybe a, a chieftain or something like that. Um, but on the other hand, there, there was this greater stratification of society in the cities. Um, so what often came along with this, this stratification in society was the need to control people. 
the need to control people, and the need to protect people. Um, so in the midst of this, uh, the way you control people is with force, but then also you're able to control people to a greater extent um, if they think more highly of you. So the, the pagan religions of, of ancient cities um, often had idols along with them, where the best records we have of more ancient peoples often um, point to a more naturalistic kind of religion, right? maybe a worship of nature or certain natural elements um, or, or a less concrete kind of divinity. But then the, the people in these early cities would have idols. And, and oftentimes the height of pagan religion was actually emperor worship or king worship. right? Because if my people think that I'm divine, then they won't try to overthrow me. But if my people think that I'm just another one of them, they might realize that if enough of us get together, then we can overthrow the king, right? And then we won't be uh, we won't be slaves anymore, or we won't be servants of the king anymore. So there's this class system that's set up, and this these pagan cults that grow, ultimately leading to emperor worship, to the emperor claiming the fact that they were divine. Um, and we see this uh, in this story of the ancient. Israel, the ancient people of Israel, when they're in Egypt, while the first generation of people with Joseph seem to do fine, um, it says that the next Pharaoh that come actually enslaves the people and puts them to work um, in, in creating his public monuments and, and other work throughout the city, probably um, also raising grain and, and farming and various other labors on behalf of him. We know that the Egyptian Pharaoh from historical records also claimed this sort of divinity, that they were the, the son of the God of the sun, the sun God, Ra. Um, and so when uh, Moses uh, comes on the scene, um, there's a lot of beautiful symbolism in all this, and I won't dig into all, quite all of it, um, but uh, the Egyptians start killing the firstborn of the, of the uh, Hebrews, and this is because their numbers are multiplying and the Egyptians are becoming afraid of, of the Hebrew numbers, right? They're literally afraid that the Hebrews are going to take over, right? If there's more of them than us, then we're not safe from them, right? And, and, and the pesky thing about the Hebrews was they had their own God. Uh, so they wouldn't necessarily participate in worshiping the Egyptian gods or recognizing the Pharaoh as God. Right, very dangerous for him to maintain the order of things. So in the midst of this, uh, there's a, a young woman who doesn't want her son to die, understandably, sends him in a basket down the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter finds him and then raises him as her own child. And this child is Moses. Uh, but Moses... Um, uh, Moses, uh, while raised as an Egyptian is still Hebrew ethnically and, and realizes this. And the story continues on that as an adult, he noticed the Egyptian taskmaster abusing one of the Hebrews and he lashes out in anger and kills this Egyptian and then flees in fear of the consequences of his action. So he gets out of Egypt and gets back into nature, gets back into this, um, this pastoral lifestyle of raising animals that his people had left. So the important task when you're in Egypt is you want to be in Egypt for the safety, but you don't want to become Egyptian, right? You don't want to become an idol worshiper. You don't want to take on their society. And in one sense, Moses 
was sort of the pinnacle of becoming an Egyptian, right? He had been raised by the Pharaoh's daughter, by the princess, and, and was part of the Egyptian royal family, uh, in a sense. So he was sort of the pinnacle of becoming like an Egyptian. And then he runs away and, and uh, takes on this pastoral lifestyle. And in the midst of this, God appears to him in a burning bush and sends him back, uh, sends him back to talk to Pharaoh, to let the people go out into the wilderness to worship in the wilderness. Right. Hopefully, as I'm saying this, you're um, you're picking up some of the the political subtext to this, right? For for the people to leave Egypt and to worship the true God in the wilderness isn't just sort of like a nice thing for them to do, like um like oh Pharaoh should let them have religious freedom. That's actually a dangerous thing for them to do, right? Because because they're going to go out there and they're going to discover who they are and who God is. And then they're going to know who Pharaoh is. Pharaoh's not God. Right? So, so Pharaoh refuses to let them do this. And, and in the midst of this, uh, Moses, by, um, by God's hand, um, Moses works out different plagues on the Egyptians. And different commentators have pointed out in the past how each one of these plagues um, was a different, um, was kind of against one of the, the different Egyptian gods or the different elements where the plagues happen affected different things that the Egyptians considered divine. Uh, the, the final of which being the death of the firstborn of all of the Egyptians. Uh, this isn't just a, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth on the divine level. No, remember, if Pharaoh is God, that means that Pharaoh's child is the son of God. right? So for, for God to kill the firstborn of the Egyptians, and the text points out specifically the son of Pharaoh um, dying, then, then this means that, that the Hebrew God is the true God, higher than the Pharaoh. So the chosen people get out of Egypt after this. They flee from Egypt, but God gives them special instructions. God gives them special instructions to celebrate a Passover meal, and they're to sacrifice a lamb, each family, or if the family's too small, they share a lamb, they sacrifice the animal, spread the blood over the lentil of their door, and then they share this meal. But in the meal, they're not supposed to leaven their bread. Right? The leaven in a bread uh, causes a chemical reaction that makes it rise, right? that creates gas pockets in the bread and makes it fluffy. So the unleavened bread is thin like a wafer or a cracker. Right? So they eat unleavened bread as part of this meal. Now think about this. They're about ready to leave town, meaning they're leaving um, they're leaving the food, they're leaving the grain stores of Egypt, and they're going to take their animals with them. But in preparation, they're going to have this big, lavish meal where they each kill one of their animals. Like every family kills an animal. Um, just imagine, like, does that make sense if you were planning this trip out of Egypt? No, God's inviting them into a relationship of trust. God's inviting them into a relationship of trust that he's going to provide for them, right? He's going to, to, to make a new work. Um, I think what's, what's implied here is they're going to leave Egypt, but God's going to provide for them the benefits that they had there. But God's going to provide for them a new land, a promised land. Um, so they get out of Egypt um, and they, they take um, with them their flocks. They pass through the Reed Sea, um, and then they end up after this at Mount Sinai, 
And at Mount Sinai, God gives them the law. At first, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, I believe, are just God teaching them the natural law. Right? God's just teaching them how to be human again. He's giving them his word, his design, his order to the universe. And, and in the midst of this, um, the, the chosen people fall back into idol worship. They literally melt down their, their gold and they um, make a golden calf. So you could read the rest of this story as sort of like you get the, the Hebrews out of Egypt, but now you need to get Egypt out of the Hebrews, <laughs> right? They, they had gone there and they were supposed to maintain their identity and, and stay true to their true religion, their true worship, their true culture. And now they get out and it's a matter of almost like idol detox and they, they fall back into idol worship. But when the people complain about not having food, God gives them bread. They call it manna. God gives them bread. Um, so this message, they end up in the promised land and, and they don't have a king. And later on in the story, it comes up that they, they want to have a king. And God said, well, if you have a king, he's going to be your Lord, right? And you might become slaves again. Uh, so I'm just passing through a lot of the, the Old Testament scripture, but I'm doing this so that you realize there's all these connections, not just to the Hebrew culture, but to human history and the history of agriculture and what it means to be human. There's this deeper context to all these things. Uh, so now let's fast forward. Um, we get to the point where Jesus comes on the scene. And and what do we hear about Jesus? Right from the bat, it's, uh, it's proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Right? We're thinking agriculture, pastoral imagery the lamb of sacrifice. And then Jesus goes on and says, I am the good shepherd. Then later on, I am the bread of life, right? I am the bread. Uh, So Jesus, uh, the, the last feast of the liturgical year in the church is the feast of Christ, the King, right? Jesus, God is our King. Um, and, and all rulers and leaders after that are delegated authority from God. Um, so God is our King, but we're not his slaves. God is our king, but we are not his slaves. Right? Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The, the yoke would, would be a, a contraption. You, you would connect cattle to a burden. Right? You might take two cattle side by side, put a yoke over their shoulders, and then they would use that to pull either something, maybe like a plow through a field, or they would pull maybe a cart or a load of something that needed to be moved. But Christ says, my burden is light, right? When, when, uh, when Christ invites us into his kingdom, he calls us children. He says, when you pray, say, our Father, right? So, so uh, what, what this whole message is, is saying to us as humans, to our human nature in historical context is, I will be, be your king, but you will not be my slave, right? You will have bread, You'll have the security that goes along with this kind of agriculture, but you won't have to labor, right? You're not going to be made a slave. Um, So we're children of the Father and friends of Christ. So the Eucharist, the bread, symbolizes the complete nourishment of our human nature, but then also points to our supernatural divinization as God's children. The Eucharist symbolizes the complete nourishment and care 
for our human nature, right? Everything that we could have hoped for as humans is fulfilled in the Eucharist. Paragraph 1333 of the Catechism says, At the heart of the Eucharistic celebration are the bread and wine, that by the words of Christ and the invocation of the Holy Spirit become Christ's body and blood. Faithful to the Lord's command, the church continues to do this in his memory, and until his glorious return, what he did on the eve of his passion, he took bread. He took the cup filled with wine. The signs of bread and wine become, in a way, surpassing understanding the body and blood of Christ. They continue also to signify the goodness of creation. Thus, in the offertory, we give thanks to the Creator for bread and wine, fruit of the work of human hands, but above all, as fruit of the earth and of the vine, gifts of the Creator. The Church sees in the gesture of the King Priest Melchizedek, who brought out bread and wine, a prefiguring of her own offering. Abraham encounters this, this interesting figure after a battle named Melchizedek, the King of Salem. And, and he makes an offering to him, and Melchizedek makes a bread sacrifice. Uh, and we see this as a prefiguring of what happens at our Mass. So this bread and wine, is, it's both a symbol of Christ, right? It's, it's pointing to, to Christ, who is present, body, blood, and soul, and divinity. But it's also this natural symbol, the work of human hands, but also the gift of God, of our sustenance. In paragraph 1334, the next paragraph in the Catechism says, The Old Covenant... Bread and wine were offered and sacrificed amongst the first fruits of the earth as a sign of grateful acknowledgement to the Creator, but they also received a new significance in the context of the Exodus. The unleavened bread that Israel eats every year at Passover commemorates the haste of the departure that liberated them from Egypt. The remembrance of the manna in the desert will always recall to Israel that it lives by the bread of the Word of God. So when Jesus celebrates the first Mass, which was his Last Supper, the Last Supper he he shared with his apostles before he dies, this is a Jewish Passover meal. They're celebrating the Passover, and so they're sharing these cups of wine, but Jesus breaks from the script, and he prays these new prayers and tells them, do this in remembrance of me. So as Christians, this is what we do, because immediately after this is when Christ dies for us and then rises from the dead, right? So, so wrapped up in this Old Testament Passover is now this new Passover uh, where the angel of death passes over our home because the blood of the lamb is spread over the lentil of the door of our salvation, which is the cross. Uh, so, so you see all of this tying together in this beautiful way. Um, so this is the symbol of bread and wine at the Eucharist. Let's go to the next layer down the reality and the sign, the res et sacramentum. So what actually happens? So paragraph 1374 says, The mode of Christ's presence under the Eucharistic species is unique. It raises the Eucharist above all the sacraments as the perfection of the spiritual life and the end to which all the sacraments tend. In the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, And therefore, the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. This presence is called real, by which is not intended to exclude other types of presence, as if they could not be real too, but because it is 
presence in the fullest sense, that is to say, in a substantial presence by which Christ, God, and man makes himself holy and entirely present. So the whole Christ is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. We call this this action of the, the bread and wine becoming the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, transubstantiation. That prefix trans means across, right? So become from going from one place to another, across. And then substance, the substance of the thing is the deeper nature or identity of the thing. It's contrasted with the accidents. The accidents are the thing's properties. So the accidents of something are, are all the things that you can pick up with your senses, what it looks like, smells like, tastes like, feels like, sounds like. The deeper identity of the thing is the category under which it falls, its deepest identity. So what we're saying is in the Eucharist, the, the accidents all stay the same, right? It still smells like bread, tastes like bread, looks like bread, feels like bread, but the substance changes. It goes across the gap between the create creation to the creator, from the, the creature to the divine. Uh, so it becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. You might say this is this is crazy. <laughs> like, how could anyone ever believe this? And, and to a certain extent, if you think that, you're a little bit right. <laughs> um, but I want to propose that any argument that um, that would disprove the Eucharist would also disprove the Incarnation. The Incarnation is God the second person of the Trinity, taking on human nature. So that's Jesus, fully God and fully human. So you might say, well, Jesus just looks like a human, right? Jesus just smells like a human, just tastes like a human, just sounds like a human, just feels like a human. And you'd be right. You could even scrape off some of Jesus's cells and put them under a microscope and they would just seem human. Uh, if you didn't have the eyes of faith or an openness and vulnerability, Right, he just probably seemed like a normal guy, and we know from the scripture that people walked away from him, right? Whether it be in the bread of life discourse from the Gospel of John, or it be Judas leaving him at the Last Supper, or the rich young man that walks away from him sad, right? These people left him, implying that some people didn't realize who he was. So. So any argument that's used against the Eucharist based on it being still accidentally bread and wine could also be used to disprove the incarnation. Because in every way with his accidents, Jesus just seemed human. Paragraph 1380 of the Catechism says, It is highly fitting that Christ should have wanted to remain present to his church in this unique way. Since Christ was about to take his departure from his own in his visible form, he wanted to give us his sacramental presence. Since he was about to offer himself on the cross to save us, he wanted to have the memorial of the love with which he loved us to the end, even to the giving of his life. In this, his Eucharistic presence, he remains mysteriously in our midst as the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And he remains under signs that express and communicate this love. So Jesus remains present to us in the Eucharist. Uh, in the early church, they at times referred to the Eucharist as the prolongment of the incarnation, right? By the, by the church praying over the bread and wine, the, 
the priests, the bishops, who were the successors of the apostles and those ordained by them, by them praying over the bread and wine and continuing to do what Christ invited us to do, um, we believe that Jesus remains physically present to his church, literally in, in, on every altar of every Catholic church and every tabernacle of every Catholic church, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Let's go to the next layer down, the, the reality in totality, the re- reality itself, the res tantum, the third layer of the sacrament. One thing I, I want to mention is that unlike the other sacraments, the Eucharist doesn't first happen to the recipient, right? Or at least who we think the recipient is. The Eucharist first and primarily happens uh, in the person of the church, in the church. It's the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. Uh, so the Eucharist happens when the priest prays over the bread and wine, and that bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So that's the moment when the, the, the miraculous change happens, right? The, the sacramental change happens. This beautiful movement from the creature to the creator happens. Heaven and earth are breached when that happens. So that all happens on the altar. The other sacraments all happen when the recipient receives them, right? When the, the person has the water poured on their head, they're baptized. When the couple make vows to each other, they're married. When the priest prays over the penitent, they're forgiven. All the other six sacraments happen in the midst of a member of the church receiving them. The Eucharist is the one sacrament that happens on the altar because it's primarily something that the church is receiving. It's happening for the whole world. And in, in, um, in fact, the, one of the primary duties of a priest is to offer Mass daily for the sanctification of the church. And then the priest receives the host and the wine on behalf of the whole church. And so in, in the older liturgy and in some churches with a more traditional approach, after the priest receives from the cup, the server rings a bell, right? And that signifies that, that it's been consummated, right? That, that this communion between Christ and the church has been completed in the person of the priest receiving the bread and wine. But the good news is we get to participate in this too. Uh, so we receive the Eucharist then as a church together. And a lot of the symbolism of the Mass points to this. Right? We, we move forward to receive the host in a procession, in a com- communal movement forward. We're moving forward. Right? On, on a natural level, our human nature, we're not healed for independence. We're healed to be more radically dependent on others. The state of isolation is a result of sin. When we, when we talked about uh, that history of humanity, Remember, the oldest uh, communities of people were tribes, right? Our oldest ancestors weren't lone wolves. They weren't off by themselves. We were together. And and so much about our body preaches to this. Our body screams connection and communion that we're designed to be with each other. So when when we're healed, when we we receive this perfection of, of what it means to be human in the Eucharist, we do this together as a church. So we're healed for radical dependence, on God and upon one another. So natural perfection is only found in relationship. And this means that our supernatural elevation, we're not sanctified independently, 
we're elevated into a body, into the church, and ultimately into heaven, which is the perfect fulfillment of the church. So we're receiving the Eucharist as a community of people who are being elevated to a supernatural level as sons and daughters of God. So there's actually levels of participation in the Eucharist. Um, And we've all experienced this, or a lot of us have experienced this to some extent in the last year during the coronavirus pandemic, because for a while, a lot of people couldn't go to church and some people still can't because of their medical condition. Uh, So the, the kind of most, uh, the the most remote way to participate in the Eucharist, uh, but is a true participation is what's called spiritual communion, right? You might be watching mass on a live stream or, or maybe at mass, but since you're not Catholic, or maybe you're a Catholic who's out of communion with the church, either because of uh, an irregular marriage situation or because of committing mortal sin, you might abstain from receiving the Eucharist. But you can make a spiritual communion. I mean, being in the presence of God, you pray and ask for the grace of that communion. Uh, you have a, a, a communal moment in your heart, a heart-to-heart conversation with God. Uh, the next layer up, you might have a Mass offered for someone. Every Mass is offered for an intention. And you can actually make an, an offering to have uh, a Mass offered for someone who's deceased or someone who's living for an intention that you have. So having the Mass offered for someone is a way for them to participate in the Eucharist, to receive the Eucharist. Next, we do this devotion in the church called Eucharistic Adoration. The host is exposed in this uh, vessel called a monstrance from the Latin word mostrare, which means to show. So it's a decorative vessel. And, and the bread is placed in that, and you can see it with your senses. So it's like receiving the Eucharist with your eyes uh, and being physically in the presence of the host. To, to one, focus our attention. Right? We're creatures of sense, so we need something to focus our attention. So it focuses our attention on God's presence. But it's also uh, a prefiguring of heaven in its own special way. One of the, the ways that we describe heaven is a beatific vision. Right? So to receive our Lord with our eyes is a foretaste of heaven in a special way. And then finally, the most perfect way to participate in the Eucharist is to consume it, to receive it, to eat it. Um, it's often quoted that St. Augustine said that, that in normal food, we eat and digest it and it becomes a part of us. But the Eucharist is a unique kind of food because um, while we receive the Eucharist, God consumes us. Right? In a sense, God digests us. By us receiving the Eucharist, we become more like him. We become divinized. So the Eucharist is spiritual strength. The effects it has on us, the subjective effect it can have on us, is to strengthen us in charity, to help us to love better, to act how God would act in the world, to have agape love, the theological virtue of love. It also forgives venial sins. So any any sin that you have that hasn't destroyed your relationship with God, it forgives those sins. It reunites us more perfectly with God and with the church and is also a great symbol of friendship with God, to live with God or to share life with God. Right? So these are the subjective uh, things that we receive when we receive the Eucharist. So regardless of the holiness of the priest, the holiness of the people in the crowd and their disposition, if the bread and wine are used at the Mass with the right prayers— it becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. But depending on the disposition holiness of the minister, of the priest or bishop who's celebrating the Mass, and the holiness and disposition of the recipients, 
right? They're going to receive what's called the ex opere operantis, that, that actual grace in their heart to a greater or lesser degree. So this means if, if you're ill disposed, right? If maybe, um, who knows for whatever reason, because of, uh, a sinful lifestyle or because of, uh, being, uh, not aware of what's truly happening or not entering wholeheartedly, theoretically, you could receive the Eucharist, but it could have very little effect in your life because you're prohibiting yourself from receiving the ex opere operantis, right? This actual grace. And those graces, like I said, were spiritual strength, food for the journey, charity, love, the forgiveness of sins. Actually, that's a, a definitive effect. So that would be up in the previous layer. Um, and then that friendship with God, that living together with God or the practice of the presence of God. So how can we prepare ourselves for Mass? How can we dispose ourselves to Mass? I like to talk about three preparations for Mass. Uh, the first one is the immediate preparation. And this is probably what we often all think of as the preparation. Right? It's literally the moment as you receive, receiving wholeheartedly, paying attention, uh, prayerfully, taking that host in your hand or in your mouth and, and consuming it. And then in the, that moment when the host is going down into your digestive system, prayerfully and attentively um, giving your heart, your mind, your soul, your whole self to God. So praying in the intimacy of communion. So this is the, the most immediate kind of preparation. We also have approximate preparation, meaning it's, it's sort of the day of. Catholics have always had a tradition of fasting before Mass. Our, our current uh, church law requires an hour before Mass, but previous versions of church law required that um, up until the point where you received the Eucharist during the day, you would fast. Uh, so there weren't a lot of evening Masses. A lot of Masses were early in the day because you wouldn't eat your breakfast until after Mass. Um, and, and so you would fast, and then you would also, uh, you're encouraged to cultivate silence leading up to Mass. So like practically speaking, turn off your radio in the car uh, another great way to do this is to read the readings that are going to be shared at Mass ahead of time. You might uh, bless yourself with holy water. Right? Most Catholic churches normally have holy water fonts at the doors. During the pandemic, they've been removed. But you can get your own private supply of holy water and bless yourself with it. We do this as a reminder of our baptism. Remember, the Eucharist uh, is a perfection, a completion of the sacraments of initiation. But it starts with our baptism. So it's fitting that when we enter church, we do something to remind us of our baptism, to renew our baptismal grace. And then engaging in the whole liturgy, whole heartfelt participation in the Mass, sitting, standing, kneeling, listening, praying, entering with our whole heart, mind, soul, and body um, into the movement of the whole church together in preparation to receive her bridegroom. So the full active participation in the Mass. But there's also a distant preparation for Mass. And I think this is uh, probably the most neglected and the one that we don't often think of as a preparation for Mass. At Mass, one of the first things we do is we pray for a forgiveness of our sins. It's called the penitential rite. Uh, so we actually bring our whole life to Mass with us. Right? We bring everything with us. We bring our whole self, our whole history to that Mass with us. As humans, we're creatures of habit. Right? And we've grown in virtues and vices. And these virtues and vices have actually either made us more free or less free. We're, sin makes us a slave. Right? Devil makes us a, a slave. The devil 
Uh, sin isn't an act of freedom. It's an act of self-destruction. Virtue makes us free, and God makes us free because he makes us children. Right? So we have this, this great paradigm. Do we want to be slaves or do we want to be children? Uh, do we want to, to put ourselves under the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of God? Those are our two options. There's no middle ground. So we bring our whole life to God, but that means when I receive that Eucharist, to a certain extent, my capacity to receive that Eucharist well has already been determined by the quality of my life that I bring to that liturgy. So it isn't just a matter of me putting that bread in my mouth and like squeezing really hard. And if I could just try harder and push more connection into myself, then then I could be the person that God called me to be. No, at Mass, I bring my whole life, right? I start recognizing my sin and my humanity. And in the offertory, I bring my whole self to the Lord and give myself to him, and he gives his whole self back to me. Um, But the reality is because of my sin and my brokenness, I imperfectly receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So I'm imperfectly sanctified by it. Uh, so that the task of our life, the great work that we're all about in season two of physically spiritual, as we go through this three-legged stool of how to become more and more the image of God through the sacraments, through prayer, and through our life of asceticism, is this journey, right? How do we bring ourselves to the Eucharist in a way that we can truly receive everything God is offering us? How can we truly receive God himself uh, to become more and more in the image and likeness of God? This show and all media on Awaken Catholic is made possible by the Awaken Nation and the Hollow app. The Awaken Nation is a community of people like you who support all things Awaken for as cheap as a cup of coffee a week and get access to exclusive content. Learn more by visiting awakencatholic.org donate. Hollow is the only audio-guided Catholic prayer app focused on contemplative prayer and traditional Catholic meditation such as Lexio Divina, Daily Examine, and the Rosary. We here at Awaken all use Hollow every day and love it. To learn more or give it a try, visit hollow.app slash awaken.